fools will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Fireman ready. <laughs> the restoration okay, hour on. with Pastor Eli. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Alright, okay folks, we're on the air with the Restoration Hour and Jan Lamprecht has made his appearance in the middle of the uh, intro music. Very good. Alright, All right, Jan, how are you doing this evening? I'm fine, thanks. And you, Eli, thank uh, you so much for yeah. having me on your show. Okay, so uh, maybe you could tell people, that because uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, well, most of us uh, probably have heard of you because of your outstanding work exposing the Jews, what, um, you know, maybe you could give people a little background information on how you got to this point in uh, fighting for the, the white race. Ah, okay. Well, um, my parents are Afrikaans, they are Boers, they came from South Africa, they moved to Rhodesia, and later Rhodesia, as you may know, became Zimbabwe. Then I moved to South Africa and all my family left uh, Zimbabwe. And I was actually just trying to avoid all kinds of politics. And in the 1990s, when the internet came, I decided to try and do something because I was really worried about jobs back then, that the blacks were going to drive us out of our work. So I started to look for something that I could do on the internet, which had just come about. And I, I wrote a book called Hollow Planets. And I deliberately targeted something that I could do maybe that would reach an American audience and that would not be political. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fat chance. And, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And then, then what I did was I did Hollow Planets. I got onto the Jeff Renz show. I did Coast to Coast AM. And then in the year 2000, suddenly Robert Mugabe, the communist in charge of Zimbabwe, began to seize the farms of the whites. And because I'd been watching all these commies, I knew this is bad, bad news. And this is something that the whites of South Africa need to be warned about. And so that was this time I became back then, wasn't um, alert to the Jewish issue. I started a website called African Christ. I did a lot of stuff talking about farm murders, the, the mass murder of whites in South Africa and so forth. And, and Americans didn't believe me. They thought I was lying. They said, what? The blacks are murdering the farmers? You, you've got to be kidding us. There's no evidence for that. Anyway. No reporting on um, it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I managed to get crime scene photos, and I started putting it on my website. And then on African Crisis, I had various Christians uh, strangely, I drew lots of Christians from America and Europe. My audience has always ended up being Christian, even though I've not been Christian. But I think it's, think it's because I understand Christian values and the place and the society I come from as Christian. I, right. I used to be almost, I used to almost be like Brian Rue. You know, Brian Rue's into Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I used to be some something like that. 
but I always understood Christian values. And then I had these Christians saying to me, but you know, Jan, there's this problem called the Jews. <laughs> and I said, and I said, Jews, what, what can be wrong with the Jews? I, I know Jews. I've got lots of Jewish friends. And then people would say to me, well, the Jews this and the Jews that. And I'd go to my Jewish friends and I'd say, listen, people are saying this and that about you. And the Jews would say, no, 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 this is wrong. And I'd go back. I'd tell the people, no, you, you're talking shit, man. The Jews are good people. Anyway, what really woke me up there was in 2012 when I read about uh, the history of Germany. And I understood that, that the Jews were behind communism in Germany. Right. You see, I, I'd already been racially aware in terms of the blacks and the commies. And that, that I'd been aware of in African crisis. But I didn't figure the Jewish link right. until 2012. And, and when, I saw, when I saw goodness me, you know, most of the communists in Germany in Hitler's day were Jews. I said uh, that that was the the big eye opener for me, and and then then realizing that the Jews are with communism and they're working with the blacks and they're traitors to the race. That is when I that's yeah. when that thing when I finally came full circle, you know. Right. Well, uh, regarding Nelson Mandela and Joe Slovo, uh, you know, I've been doing many shows with Pastor Martins about the Jewish subversion of South Africa, not so much Rhodesia and other countries in, in the southern, hem, southern part of Africa, but uh, it's really evident in South Africa how many Jews promoted Mandela and the ANC and the Communist Party. So, uh, had you heard of Joe Slovo uh, up before 2012 or no? No, I knew I knew about Joe Slovo. What I just didn't appreciate was that he was Jewish. But I knew of him as a very important communist. Right. In fact, in fact, Joe Slovo was um, in in the time of Rhodesia. My brother used to do a lot of military service. My my brother used to spend up to six months of the year in the Rhodesian army, and my brother one time. Um, after, after Rhodesia, my brother told me one day, he said, he said that he went on a particular camp, he was called up and, he, and um, the officers said to them, he said to them, you see this guy, Joe Slovo, this is the most important communist in all of Africa. Uh-huh. And, and this is the man behind all the liberation wars. And and he said to the Rhodesian soldiers, he said, if you ever get a chance to kill this guy, he's your number one target. Right. And um, the South Africans themselves tried to kill him. They tried to um, send him a parcel bomb and his wife opened it and it, it, blew, her, it blew her away. Oh, wow. But, uh, but um, according to Rhodesian and South African intelligence, Joe Slovo was a colonel in the KGB, uh-huh. and and um, he actually also ran the South African Communist Party for decades. I'm talking decades. There's probably no person who's run the South African Communist Party for as long as Joe Slovo ran it. Yes. And only only later did he hand it over to a black, Chris Harney. But... Um, he, he was a critical person, and yet, yet strangely, the, the ANC kept his profile rather low in South yeah. Africa, and, 
and and white South Africans don't realize how important this guy was. He later entered government and he was the minister of housing until ah. he died of cancer. Okay. But uh, but but he he was a he was very important during the war. He was like the top liaison with the Russians big right. time. Right. Okay, so communist the Soviet Union uh, uh, sponsored Joe Slovo and of course we know that Mandela went spent some time in the Soviet Union as well to get his training as a communist. Uh, do you know if Joe Slovo was involved in that or were the higher-ups in the Soviet Union involved in that? Um, Slovo was involved in so many things. You know, these guys were very active. They were they were moving around. You must remember these guys were outside South Africa. They were all banned from being in South Africa. Uh-huh. They were flying around various African countries. They were traveling to the Soviet Union, to China, to to the Warsaw Pact. No, they, they were very up and about. Make no mistake. The, uh-huh. the Soviets and the Chinese were, were um, making use of them. All these blacks and communists, they had no problem moving around. The, the Russians and the Chinese t- took them almost everywhere. Even, even low-level blacks who were recruited to fight against the whites, even they were um, flown to different countries. You'd be surprised the stories these blacks would tell. They, they were in Tanzania. They were in Libya. They, some of them went to Cuba. Others, others, others went to Russia. No, they traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Others were in all places in Eastern Europe, you know. Well, so it begs the question, where did they get this, this money to travel, to do all this traveling? Who bankrolled well, the, all this? The, the Soviet Union bankrolled a, a lot of it. I think the Soviets gave the biggest budget. But but there was money coming from many sources. And and I can't tell you the full accounting for everything, but the Soviets definitely sponsored Sponsored, the Soviets probably paid for most of it, but you will also find that there are journalists. Um, there's a Scottish journalist. His name, his name escapes me now. He's very anti-Israel. Um, if if you can think of a name, he's very anti-Israel. He he's quite open, and he himself on a YouTube video said that in the days when when he was so-called a liberal journalist. He was brought to South Africa, and every time he, he came to South Africa, he found himself being hosted by Jews. <laughs> Jews, were, Jews were bringing in these people, and, and there, are, there are others. There's, uh-huh. um, there's, another, there's another American. I forget his name. Uh, would that Scotsman Jew. be George Galloway by any chance? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's the guy. Yeah. If, if, ever, if ever you can get the video, because I had a little video, and then I lost it. If ever you can find the video or your your supporters can find the video where he talks about this, it's just a short one-minute piece, but it's very important. And and he talks about how he realized every time he comes to South Africa, he's being hosted by these rich Jews. Right. <laughs> Communists and Zionists at the same time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Communists. And Zionist at the same time. So we think, oh, we're working with Israel. All the Jews are supporting Israel. Meanwhile, they're busy bringing in our enemies and funding them. And, yeah. and they're even 
And they're even pumping out, this is the thing that South Africans don't really truly grasp, I think, is they don't realize that while these Jews were living among them, the Jews are busy pumping out all this hate about apartheid. Oh, the right. whites are so full, apartheid, so evil. And, yeah, and, and they created the, it. They, they helped bankroll it through the British Empire. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, this is the kind of double dealing the Jews are guilty of worldwide. And the people of South Africa, Rhodesia, and uh, what's the country to the north of there? Uh, your um, slide presentation that you had at the Fash Bash last weekend. Uh, Angola, is it? Yes, Angola. Angola the Portuguese, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so most people in America and actually around the world have no idea that the uh, richest Jews in the world, the Rothschilds and their banking pals, have been financing communism all over the world, and especially using communists, because this way the focus of attention is drawn away from the bankers, okay? Because people assume that communism and uh, Jewish banking are worlds apart, but they're not. What's What's been your experience in this area? Yeah, you know, I also thought, uh, you know, I thought in the days of Rhodesia and South Africa in the 1980s, we thought, no, Israel is is the enemy of the Soviet Union. Israel is our friend. And then when I finally woke up to the fact, you know, in 19, in 2012, when it finally hit me that the Jews were the, the prime movers behind communism in, in Germany and Europe, and the Soviet Union, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, bad. You know, I, it, it was like, whoa, I, I've been talking to Jews all my life. I thought that they were, in fact, in fact, when I had Jewish friends, my goal with my Jewish friends was always to say to them, you know, why don't, why don't you Jews and us whites, uh, Boers, why don't we fight the blacks together? Right. And, and that, that, that was my plan. And, and I was constantly trying to say to them, you know, don't be so liberal. Come join us. Let's fight these black communists together because they're going to destroy your businesses and, and everything. Meanwhile, right. little do I know that these Jews are financing communism. They're in bed with the communists. They're giving money to the communists. Mm-hmm. And if you go and you look, you'll see that even President Ramaphosa, who wants to seize uh, the the land that President Ramaphosa um, gave a lick. He gave a speech at a synagogue in Cape Town, and he's openly friends with the chief rabbi of South Africa. Wow. And, the, and, and both of them go, go, and they both talk at the synagogue, mm-hmm. and they both boast about what good friends they are, how the Talmud, how, how he's reading the Talmud yeah. in the president's office. It's, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. You know, here are the yeah. Jews and they're, they're buddies with our worst enemies. Yeah, and I'll bet they both cook white people in a big pot and eat them. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. That's, that's what they'd love to do. That's what they'd and, love to do, right. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're doing that by, by way of abortion, too, right? And uh, all kinds of uh, derelict-type activities around the world. So here we see uh, uh, this has never been promoted by the mainstream media because we know who owns the mainstream media, lock, stock, and barrel around the world. So the association between communism and Talmudism is never revealed anywhere except 
in the ultra-radical right-wing press. We're the only ones who ever expose this. Uh, so, uh, but uh, let's get back now uh, because your slideshow, and maybe you could tell people if they could access this slideshow on the Internet, yeah, your story about Rhodesia and uh, Angola, because our audience has gotten quite a lot of information about South Africa, the Boers and Afrikaners of South Africa, but very little about Rhodesia and Angola. So maybe you could you know, go into those two countries and your slideshow. Yeah, that is, that is partly why I put that slideshow together. The only place that's got it online that I know of is Jovi Val TV, where we had the Fash Bash. He's the only one that's that's got it online. And um, I basically decided to put together, it started as a project last year, I decided to put together the full story of the whites of Southern Africa because it's not just South Africa that fought against black rule and communist rule. It was Rhodesia, it was um, Southwest Africa, now known as Namibia. And there were two Portuguese territories. The Portuguese are the only Europeans that actually fought against communism in Africa. So, And the Portuguese story is largely untold. So that is why I put that slideshow together, because even in South Africa, a large part of what I've told you is not actually known. The South Africans know about, they know about their, their role, they know about Angola, they know about the ANC to quite a degree, they know about Namibia, but they don't know much about Rhodesia, and they definitely don't know about the Portuguese. Even the Rhodesians don't know much about the Portuguese. Right. And so that so that is why I tried to put it in perspective to say that there were five white run countries in southern Africa who fought against black rule, who fought against communist black rule. And mm-hmm. Portugal to to its credit is the only European country that actually fought an all out war. And basically we all fought against uh, communist racist mm-hmm. aggression really right to to preserve white rule yes now one of the things that struck me about your slideshow was the uh, the valiant defense that the white rhodesian farmers put up against the same type of attempts to destroy them that are occurring now in south africa and uh, so maybe you could go into the rhodesian story a bit first and uh, d- describe, because you said you lived in Rhodesia for a while. Okay. Yes, yes. I, I was born in Rhodesia, and I lived there until I was 17 years old when Mugabe came to power. And I also lived on a farm, but I lived on a farm close to the capital. Whereas a lot of these very intensive attacks that took place took place quite a distance from our main cities, especially up in the north in the centenary area. There was, there was a lot of intensive fighting as the blacks tried to drive the white farmers out of um, the Mount Darwin and Centenary areas. And those, those white farmers probably came up against some of the most brutal attacks of blacks in Southern Africa, um, except maybe for some of what the Portuguese faced. But those farmers fought back. The government also helped to arm them. The government also helped to guide them on on building defenses. And those farmers had to put up some very, very um, heavy defenses around their houses. And, you know, you you basically had a a white man and his wife 
and his children and these blacks would come at night with uh, AK-47s, machine guns, mortars, RPG-7s, hand grenades and they'd be attacking a white, a white family and they'd be trying to kill them, man. Right. And, yeah. And, and <laughs> he, he, these, these whites had, had fences, they had dogs, they had wire mesh, they sometimes had sandbags around their, their houses, they had to like duck down and crawl around on the floors because machine guns were firing through the windows, uh, blacks were trying to chuck hand grenades through the windows, and it, it was very, very brutal, but the whites fought back valiantly, you know. Uh -huh. some, some of the whites were even blown up with landmines. Oh and these blacks were armed with, with modern Soviet and Chinese weaponry. They were given the latest weaponry, and, and they were hitting the whites, you know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it sounds like Detroit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Where do you get these yeah. modern weapons from, right? Even white people can't buy that stuff, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, white people can't get RPG-7s, and RPG-7 is an anti-tank weapon. Right. The blacks were around with anti-tank weapons they were walking around with soviet and chinese anti-tank landmines hand grenades mortars machine guns these these blacks were armed to the teeth man yeah yeah given 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 the latest training by mm -hmm. the soviet union by the chinese but uh, from uh, your presentation it, uh, the the whites to handle themselves pretty well and uh the, these farm attacks weren't actually doing that much damage to the white people as as i recall from your presentation is that the case correct correct <laughs> the, their houses might be shot full of holes but um the number of people actually killed to my knowledge i don't i don't know of any farmer or his family who were killed in such an attack i do know some were killed by landmines when they were driving down the road okay but i i think i think for the most part they survived the farm attacks quite well except for shrapnel and glass that was hitting them their houses were actually withstood the attacks well and and i think the same principles would work very well in south africa if the farmers mm -hmm. were able to just build up their defenses for their houses, they would be able to withstand a lot of stuff. You see, those farmers in Rhodesia, they had to take lots of precautions. <clears throat> they had to take lots of precautions, and it was it was a very intensive thing. Maybe some of the farmers in South Africa are also a bit poorer. Mm -hmm. um, on the whole... A lot of those tactics would probably help to save lives in South Africa. I, I, do, I do firmly believe that the whites of South Africa, especially the farmers, we should all stick together. And we, we must fight against these people who want to kill us. That's right. I, That's I really right. Okay, so when was this going on in Rhodesia? Because I've heard many people say that the people of South Africa better not go for the deal that Rhodesia had because Rhodesia is a stunning example of what's going to happen to South Africa if they accept black rule. So what time period was this Rhodesian experience with these violent blacks? The main, the main battle was waged in the 1970s, right okay. throughout the decade of the 1970s. And as, as I mentioned in my lecture, it was, it was the Jew, Henry Kissinger, who came to Southern Africa and who started 
messing around with the, the leader of South Africa and the leader of Rhodesia and started saying to them, well, you know, uh, America will, will, will stand by you, but it's got to be one man, one vote and, and detente. And, and, and basically the Jew Kissinger started putting pressure on the South Africans, turning the South Africans against the Rhodesians, mm-hmm. uh, indicating to the South Africans that, that if Rhodesia was, was left to go black, that the blacks would then uh, be very proud of South Africa. The blacks would then be very friendly to South Africa, ah. basically, basically starting to turn the whites against each other. And, and it, it led to the disaster of Rhodesia, right. truly. Okay, well, that sounds like it's turning liberals against conservatives, liberal whites who believe in the uh, you know, multiracial propaganda. Uh, so uh, what, what turned the tide in South Africa? How, how did white people, knowing what happened in Rhodesia, ever you know, buy the, 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 the propaganda that black rule could possibly be good? What, what turned them around? Or, or maybe was uh, the election a fraud? What's your opinion? Well, this is the interesting part about South Africa is that, that when I moved to South Africa and my family moved to South Africa, my brother also, the first thing we did was we wanted to know, you know, what are the whites going to do? What are the Boers going to do? And the initial impression we all had was that the Boers are going to fight, you know, mm-hmm. that the Boers, the Boers being the dominant group of whites in South Africa, the, the, the clear message from them was, um, you know, we're no colony. We've got nuclear weapons even. We, we're going to fight these people even if we have to fight tank battles against them. We're not going to let these Russian-backed black communists just run mm-hmm. over the country. Right. But I th- I think, you know, at the time, at the time I noticed um, when, when I moved to Johannesburg in the, in, the, in the mid-80s, I immediately noticed that, you know, Johannesburg is like the New York of Africa. And the moment you got to from Pretoria, which was Afrikaans dominated, you moved to Johannesburg, you immediately noticed liberalism. Mm. And this was really, really the first time that I met what I'd call the white liberal traitor. Uh-huh. And... And I'd never come across a group of whites, all the whites, even the Afrikaans whites in Johannesburg, all of them were anti-government to some extent. There was just a whole different culture in Johannesburg. Looking back on the things that I've learned since then and, and the fact that I even later met and spoke at length to President P.W. Boerta of South Africa, I will tell you that my, my opinion is that P.W. Boerta, um, when he was the state president in the 80s, his intention all along was to fight. And he was preparing to fight all out. He was talking about total war. Like Rhodesia uh, and Angola, right? Uh, ab- ab- absolutely. And even on a bigger scale. And everything was ready for it. They had the military. They had the science. They had... They had oil supplies that they'd stashed away in mines. They had they had oil from coal that that um, that they that they were able to produce. They were going to stand up to the world alone, and they were going to fight these freaking Russians. And then a very strange thing happened in the late 1980s. Out of the blue, I. Out of the blue, suddenly one day, P.W. Boerta went on, on South African TV 
and he said that people in his cabinet had come to him that day and they told him that he must resign oh. and that he and that he must resign and and claim that it was due to ill health uh-huh. And he said, well, he isn't ill. There's nothing wrong. He's not resigning. And you know what happened was a short while thereafter, he suddenly got a heart attack, just uh-huh. like that. Just like that. And the, and the moment he got this heart attack, suddenly he had to resign. And everybody then said, oh, it's ill health. Now, I think he was poisoned. And he, he and I even discussed this theory, and he himself thinks that somebody must have poisoned him because the Russians had, the Russians, for example, had a poison that can give you a heart attack. So there, so there mm-hmm. are ways of slipping people these kinds of things. And you know what? The moment he, he resigned due to so-called ill health, they put in this guy, F.W. de Klerk, and the first thing we heard on the news was that F.W. de Klerk is a right-winger. He's a hardcore <laughs> right-winger. Right. And, we, and we thought, oh, phew, thank goodness he's a right-winger. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, meanwhile, he's totally in with the Jews. He, he, was, he was so closely associated with the Jews that I later heard from P.W. Boerta himself that Benai Brith, Benai oh, Brith, right. Benai Brith even paid him money. They even paid him money and they assisted him. He got all kinds of rewards for, for basically selling the whites of South Africa down the river. And basically, they, they got rid of the guy who was going to fight, put a traitor in his place. And, that, and from there onwards, it was just liberal propaganda like you cannot believe. Yeah. And, and America also played a role in it. Um, we, we heard at the time that large numbers of CIA agents were right. entering the country. So, so South Africa, the whites of South Africa were going to fight and their leader was intent on fighting. And then this, this funny stuff that happened at the top. I suspect, I suspect that the Jews got close to the, the Afrikaans leaders and started working on them. And yeah. that's where all this nonsense came from. Okay. The, en- right. the enemy within, if I may say. Amen, amen. Well, okay, so uh, run through those names again because our American listeners and even our European listeners probably are not familiar with those names, uh, P.W. Botha and F.W. de Klerk. So you're saying that uh, P.W. Botha was the real patriot and he was poisoned, correct? Yes, I, I believe there's a chance he was poisoned because suddenly suddenly after he'd said his health was fine, nothing's wrong with him, a short while thereafter, suddenly he gets a heart attack and the next thing is you hear he's got to resign due to ill health. But if somebody could go into the archives, I do recall that there was a time when he appeared on TV openly stating that people had told him to resign and he wasn't going <laughs> to resign. Wow. Wow. And, and lots lots of those things have disappeared. You don't see them on the record. They're oh, all yeah. gone. And 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 PW PW was closely associated with um, another great guy, probably the greatest leader in the history of South Africa. Uh, Dr. Hendrik Favurt, who was assassinated, uh-huh. he was also he was assassinated in the 60s. Now he was very anti-communist, and he was openly anti-Jewish. He openly mm. he openly warned the whites about the Jews, 
back in 1937. He was back in 1937. He was already writing in the Transvaal newspapers saying that the that South Africa should not accept Jews from uh, Europe. Hey, so he's our version of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin yes. Franklin gave the same warning to the Continental Congress. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 he was murdered under very 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 strange circumstances at about the same time that that um, you know we could say the 1960s was the age of assassination. You know, you have yeah. JFK, you've got Favut, you've got George Lincoln, Rockwell. All of them died within a couple of years of each other. You know. Yeah, and none of them were friendly to the Jews. Only the Jews' enemies were assassinated in those days. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I'm, not, I'm not sure about Robert Kennedy, uh, but JFK, uh, you know, openly. Well, actually, not, not openly, but privately feuded with um, oh, was it the prime David Ben Gurion, the prime minister of Israel, uh, over the, the fact that the Jews of Israel wanted the atomic bomb, and JFK refused to give it to them. So that was one of the reasons that, that uh, the Israelis wanted uh, JFK dead, among other things. He, he also wanted to get rid of the CIA, and he was not in favor of escalating the war in Vietnam. Basically, all the things that Jews wanted, JFK began to oppose in the later stage of his presidency. So it's really obvious who wanted him dead, okay? Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and and also he was getting ready to 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 abandon the Fed and print notes. I believe, oh, right? I, th I think he, I think he even did print some notes, you know. And, and that alone that alone is yeah. a recipe for death. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> because you don't mess with the Jews' money, <laughs> you don't. And uh, Saddam Hussein found out about that too, and so did uh, the Libyan president found out the hard way that you don't mess with the Jews international money system that will get you killed even Abraham Lincoln found that out okay yes. so, yeah yeah okay so this is a, a tremendous story that and it's simply amazing how the international so-called press is able to keep tabs or uh, not tabs but to keep under wraps all of these assassinations going on in various countries around the world, committed primarily by Mossad and similar organizations such as the CIA, which has always been under the control of the Jews because it's an outgrowth of the OSS, which prosecuted the Nuremberg trials on behalf of both communist Jews and capitalist Jews. Okay, most, most Americans don't know that the CIA has always been controlled by Jews and not for America's interests. Okay, so, all right, so P.W. Bolta was actually planning on fighting against the communists in the same way that Rhodesia and Angola did. Very interesting, very interesting. So it's the politics yes. of assassination. And, Go ahead. And, and, and I can say a few more things. P.W. Bolta was specifically, uh, let's call it skilled in this area or knowledgeable in this area, because in the 1970s, he became the Minister of Defense of South Africa. He was very, he, he played a big role in the big military and scientific buildup of South Africa's military power. And he, in the final days of Rhodesia, in the final days of Rhodesia, 
um, when P.W. Buerta was promoted to higher levels, he still came to Rhodesia and he was very friendly to us. Uh-huh. Unfortunately for us, it was too late, but I remember him. He, w- he really tried to help us. And there was no question that, you know, he also made a point that, that he refused to let Nelson Mandela go. He said to Nelson mm-hmm. Mandela that he would let Mandela go if Mandela publicly, if Mandela publicly denounces the use of violence. Right. And Mandela refused. And so PW was not going to let him go. He had to publicly denounce the use of violence. Mm-hmm. He, he had his opportunities. Right. So he was a firm guy. He was a firm guy. Okay, so what is it, the clerk that let uh, Mandela go? Yes, F.W. de Klerk, as we call him. F.W. de Klerk let Mandela go. He had no preconditions. De Klerk lied to us. He said to us, well, you know, if the blacks... If the blacks, if the ANC uses more violence, then he'll stop the negotiation process, which was bogus. He, mm-hmm. he, he, he kept on negotiating. The blacks could get as violent as they wanted to, and, and he just let it carry on. He also lied to the whites. He said to us, he said to us. Okay. Uh, How? Power sharing. That was power his sharing. Term. Uh, okay. Power sharing, and and then and then before you knew it, it was handed over, but nobody actually said it officially. But yet there it was, straight in your face. Right. And, right. and well, and okay, okay. So-called power sharing, and this is the type of so-called democracy most of the European nations have. They have what's called power sharing, uh, unlike the British. Uh, Parliamentary democracy, where they have the Tories and the uh, Liberals—I forget what they're actually called right now—the Labour Party, I guess it is. Uh, is. Canada has a similar; they have the Liberals and the Conservatives, which are uh, the same. But most of the democracies in Europe have a power-sharing arrangement where people vote for particular parties. And whichever party gets the most votes, they have the maximum number of delegates. And then the, the party that gets the least number of votes has the least number of delegates, and then everybody falls in between. But in South Africa, well, what was the maximum ratio of blacks to whites in those days, let's say in the days of the clerk? What, what was the ratio then? Well, the ratio was probably more than more than ten percent back then. I'm not sure if it was maybe as maybe maybe even as high as fifteen percent at one time. Okay. In in the time of De Klerk, one thing I will tell you is that even after a, a very important point is that even after uh, De Klerk handed over South Africa to the ANC, ironically and very strangely. The colored people, the mixed race people, the the brown people who are like halfway between black and white, the colored people continued to vote for the whites even Mm. after black rule. Mm -hmm. And and, and one of the most amazing things is that under de Klerk, the National Party, the National Party, which was still there, 
still managed to get between 20 and 25 percent of the entire electorate of South Africa voting for them. Mm-hmm. And, and this fool and his buddies later shut down the, the national party and they, they basically lost control of the final 20 to 25 percent of the electorate that they had in their hands. Right. And do you know that, that all those whites ended up voting for a thing called the Democratic Alliance, which is a totally Jew-run political uh. party. It's, it's, it calls itself liberal. Uh. It's, got, it's got black candidates, but behind the scenes, um, the DA is 100% Jewish, Jewish-funded, Jewish think tanks behind it. Jews are mm. completely behind that thing. And so nowadays, the irony is that most whites are voting for Jews without knowing it. And uh, yeah, and I can tell you, those Jews haven't got the, haven't got the interests of the whites at heart at all. Whites yes. have got a nightmare there. Yeah, yeah. So at the very most, under power sharing, the white population, which was vastly outnumbered by blacks, if you have so-called one man, one vote, the white rule would be uh, swamped by black voters and would not have a chance. Would absolutely, absolutely. go ahead? Yeah, your your comment a- there. Ab- abs- absolutely. Um, ironically, back in the 1940s, whites were not that outnumbered. There was a time when whites in the 1940s or so made up a quarter of South Africa's population, but nowadays we're down to nine percent. And so, yeah. so you know. Even in the time of um, uh, Dr. Hendrik Favurt, he said openly, Favurt said that one man, one vote would result in white domination by blacks. Right. And he was completely against it. In fact, Dr. Hendrik Favurt even said in the late 50s, he said, South Africa should remain a white man's country. He, he, mm-hmm. he said Amen. that openly. Amen. Okay, so at what point, because obviously... And uh, we have discussed the Boer Republics and the Transvaal and, uh, and the Orange Free State with uh, Pastor Martins extensively. And those were white-dominated countries. And, and then the British began sending in their people to vote pro-British and anti-Boer. Okay, that, that's how I understand it. And then, so when did all these blacks start migrating into the, the white-controlled territory, thus beginning to outnumber them? How did that transpire? That I can't get. I think most of the migration of the blacks took place once the gold and diamond mines came oh. into being. Okay. Because because the mining was the big employer for blacks. Mm-hmm. And 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 initially in the early days of gold mining, in the early days of mining the the miners were actually white males. Right. And 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 the the elite the the globalist elite and Jewish mine owners started getting rid of white workers already more than a hundred years ago. They already Ooh. began phasing them out and bringing in blacks. And as the decades went by, even under apartheid, blacks were streaming in from even outside Africa to co- outside South Africa to come and work in the gold and diamond mines because they were being paid so well. Right. So you eventually had millions and millions of blacks 
coming to the center of South Africa, which had been a Boer Republic, the Transvaal, for example, had been a Boer Republic. And all these blacks were coming there to work in the gold mines, the platinum mines, etc. That's yeah, yeah. that's where the, the big numbers came from. Yeah. Okay. So these blacks were not indigenous to this territory at all. They had migrated from Central Africa and eventually were... I don't even know if they demanded citizenship. They were eventually given citizenship by other outsiders, namely the Jews and the, and the liberals and the British Empire. So th- yes, this is total yes. perversion from the outside. Uh, please, please explain how that worked out. You know, I, the whites of South Africa, when when the whites, you see, there was a time when the Jews and the and the British controlled white politics in South Africa up until the time of Jan Smuts, General Jan Smuts and World War II. Okay. And what happened was the, the Boers who had lost during the, the Second Anglo-Boer War, they started a secret society called the Bruderbond, which means the Brotherhood. Okay. And the Bruderbond, the Bruderbond's goal was to seize control of politics in South Africa, which in those days was still completely white. Mm -hmm. So they seized control. They won an election in 1948. And the moment they came to power, even though it was an an Afrikaans and Boer conspiracy, they they embraced all the English-speaking whites, and they okay. said, all whites stand together. We're all going to be together. And only white people are going to control this country. Uh-huh. And, and that, that basically ran from 1948 to 1994. That's the period you know as apartheid. Uh-huh. And the whites were determined to retain control of South Africa all throughout. Okay, and- now, yeah, let me interject here. But aren't these really, the Bruderbund, aren't they really the very same white liberal traitors you talked about earlier pretending now, to be pretending to be pro boer go ahead my own my own suspicion having spoken to guys who were in the bruderbond and having read some of their history the original bruderbond was out to seize control of south africa for whites okay it it seems to me that the big downhill for the whites of south africa began once they once uh, Favurt was murdered uh. because that you'll it is from that time that the the Jewish presence begins coming more to the fore once Favurt was murdered that was when these Jews including Israel started approaching the these Boers and started befriending them Mm-hmm. And it is from then that the, the slow growth of this great friendship with Jews in South Africa and Israel now starts growing and growing and growing. And it reaches its peak in the 1980s, by which time they totally dominate the economy. Everything, everything international runs through them. And, and by, then, by then, they seem to have completely taken control and influence of the actual uh, Afrikaans politicians. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. Uh, okay. and so, so I think in, in a nutshell that the, the Bruderbond itself was subverted over a period of time until it itself betrayed its own people. I see. That's, that's, that, so. makes, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually, that uh, fits historically with the Pharisees who actually began uh, their existence as a 
uh, let's call it a righteous group of Judahites, pure pure white Judahites, in the territory of Judah, which allowed no miscegenation whatsoever. But then by the time of Christ, which would be from 100 years before the time of Christ, they had been infiltrated by Edomites, i.e. Jews, <laughs> right? And had yeah. turned against their own nation for the Edomites, just as we see today the Edomites have taken over Palestine yet again. Okay? So the, right. in those days, the Edomites took power due to the Roman army, placing Herod the Edomite into power over Judah, and then in modern times, the British army put the Jews in power over the Arabs in the same territory. So the Jews can never do it on their own. They always have to use somebody else's military prowess to get what they want. Okay? So uh, this is outstanding that, that you're telling us about how, uh, you know, how and when the Jews uh, finally took over South Africa. And that was the beginning uh, of this apartheid, the end of apartheid. In the beginning of black rule, correct? This is what you're telling us. Yes, yes, because it was by the late 1980s, all this liberalism was just starting to pour uh-huh. out everywhere. But yeah. but the the newspapers, the the newspapers were already constantly working against the the Afrikaans leaders already in the 1980s. You could see they're nipping away, breaking right. morale down. But but the big the big success was when they finally brought their guy yeah. F W de Klerk and they, then it was game over. Right, know, was, right. Okay, uh, but one other thing about the, the Rothschild penchant for using immigration to change a country's political policies, because I know that the British used uh, British migrants to South Africa to populate the area and that these British migrants would vote pro-British and anti-Boer whenever the occasion arose. Okay, isn't that part of the history there? I think you are referring to what the the Boers Boers had the term for them. They called them the Eitlanders, which means literally the foreigners, the Uh the outlanders. Right. And, and, And this was part of the... This was part of um, this was part of the the British fake mode fake excuse for attacking South Africa was they said well these uh-huh. Boers are maltreating these Eightlanders these these foreign whites yeah, these British South Africa these yes, non, I mean, non-citizen you know, Britishers <laughs> yeah absolutely non-citizen. yeah absolutely uh, you know the the whole invasion of South Africa by the British I mean it's it's a hideous story and how they set these people up, how they were infiltrating and, and undermining them, and the next thing is they're attacking them, you know? Right, yeah. So they move in pretending to be friends of the Boers, and I'm sure the Boers are very suspicious of them, <laughs> right? Very suspicious yes. of them. And uh, the Rothschilds are doing the same thing today to all of Europe, all of Australia and New Zealand, America, Canada, etc., sponsoring the migration into our nations of non-whites so that ultimately we can be outvoted. Isn't this what happened to South Africa? Yes, yes. And, and you could say it happened twice, you know, first time with the the, the, the eight Londos and second time with the blacks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah, you go. It's, it's there idiot, you go. You know? It's a tried. Uh, uh, yeah. You, go ahead. You know, 
a thing I've tried to say to the to the whites of South Africa is that you know those of us who live in South Africa well the bad news for all of us is that we don't own South Africa South Africa doesn't belong to us mm -hmm. we might live there but it definitely does not belong to us and probably hasn't belonged to us for for a very long time mm -hmm. oh yeah 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 well I guess uh, like you say the from the day that uh, PW Botha was assassinated the, well that, yeah um, Favort was assassinated. Oh, Favort. Uh, yeah, yeah. I get I get those names mixed up. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Favort was no assassinated. Or no, well, okay. Well, Favort was assassinated, right? And this was, uh, in what era? What year was that? That was in the sixties. In the nineteen sixties. All right. And and, then, and that is that is when the Jews started the Israel connection started. Uh huh. Uh huh. And then you had. Uh, the episode with Ferwert and uh, De Klerk, or I'm sorry, P.W. Botha and De Klerk. See, these, yes. these uh, Americans are, are not familiar with these names, and even I'm getting confused. But uh, but uh, uh, Ferwert and uh, therefore Botha were both assassinated, correct? Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, Botha was was basically kicked out. He didn't die. He had a heart attack, but he didn't die. He In did office. recover later. Uh -huh. But um, oh. he, but he was basically thrown out. You know, they said, mm -hmm. "Oh, he's too ill. We got to get him out." And next thing is, you see, an unelected guy steps in, and now he's the president. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's it, like you say, it was close to a, to a, a second assassination. They they basically knocked out the strong white men who led South Africa. They knocked them out. And then, you know, when you knock out a strong leader, then you get the next guy's a weakling or mm -hmm. they make sure that a weakling gets in or a traitor gets in. And, you know, um, this is where Hitler is right. You know, if you don't have a strong leader, if the strong leader goes, then you'll see the whole country slides. You know, yeah. you, really need a, you really need a strong man. Amen. Amen. Well, this is why Hitler is so... Uh, defamed constantly by the international Jew, you know, the whole six million myth and, and a lot of it. You know, Hitler was not trying to rule the world. He simply wanted to regain the territory that was illegally taken from Germany by the Paris Peace Conference, you know, which took so much land and possessions away from the German people. That was a crime. That itself was a war crime. The, uh, you know, the forcing of the German people to endure the expense of World War One. That was a hideous crime. And uh, uh, Hitler, he was also trying to prevent the genocide uh, in the Danzig Corridor, where up to 30,000 Germans had been brutally murdered in Poland, uh, a part of uh, Germany that was given to Poland after World War One. And Poland had no right to that territory. Okay. Yeah, you know, Eli, now you raise a very important point, a point that people miss is that is that up to I've I've read that as many as fifty-four thousand Germans were murdered in Poland and and probably Jews were behind the 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 right. you know the instigation of those murders of Germans. And, and people say, well, why the hell did Hitler invade Poland? Well, he invaded Poland because he was he knew about the wholesale slaughter that was going on. I mean, look at America for yeah. 
for the for the death of 2,800 people in in the World Trade Center, America's gone and killed five. How many? Five million Arabs or whatever. Oh, don't bombed, go there. Bombed, don't go you there. Know, <laughs> you know, but, you're but, making but, a but, comparison. <laughs> but, but, but rightfully but I mean, so. Go ahead. But but uh, but I mean, hell, there's there's poor Hitler standing around and. 54, you know, which leader would stand by and watch 54,000 of his own people being slaughtered and ripped apart and eventually he said, you know, enough's enough. We're going to sort these people out, you know? Right. I mean, I, you, yeah. you, to, to, you know, it's, it's false to accuse Hitler of being an impatient and unreasonable man. Though, as you say, the Jews are doing this every day, you know, right. misrepresenting him grossly. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so uh, that really helps explain uh, the politics of South Africa. And again, we see it's the politics of assassination. Uh, so many American presidents have been assassinated shortly after they had made a public announcement uh, condemning the international bankers. Okay, it's like wow. if, you, if you make such a statement, uh, you get a bullet in the head or you get poisoned. Uh, yeah. McKinley was poisoned, <laughs> right? Uh, or he may have been a shot. I, I forget now, but uh, it's usually one or the other. It's usually poison or a shooting, often by a Jew. Wow. Often by a Jew. And, uh, and of course, in the Kennedy assassination, the assassination, uh, the assassin wasn't a Jew. It was somebody other than Lee Harvey Oswald. But a Jew by the name of Jack Rubenstein finished off Oswald so he couldn't testify. <laughs> so the world would not know who the actual assassin, assassin was. Okay. So definitely CIA connection, Mossad connection there. Right? Well, yeah. well there's, there's an interesting parallel in the case of Favut because they, the, there were two assassination attempts on Favut. And the very first one was by a guy, by a white guy called, I think, David Pratt, who came and shot him in the face. Wow. And later on, and later on, somebody said to me that this David Pratt may himself have been a Jew. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is, do you know that when this David Pratt was in jail, shortly thereafter, he suddenly was found hanging. He was he, he died from being hung inside the jail. Very much like Lee Harvey Oswald. Somebody comes and gets rid of him. Right, so he can't testify. To, yeah, Absolutely. Whoever, yeah, whoever like hired that. him, whoever hired him was afraid he'd squeal. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, so they couldn't afford that to happen. Amazing, amazing stuff. Okay, so... Um, all right, we're going to uh, let's take a little break here. We're at the top of the hour, and uh, but I want to get back to the story of Rhodesia and then Angola and the slideshow that you had presented to people, which I think is very very interesting stuff and uh, is not well known at all. And in, in fact, the, cover, the territory we just covered is not very well known to people at all here in America, and I'm sure in Europe. Uh, people simply do not know the uh, you know the uh, the shenanigans, the, the behind-the-scenes history of the Jews in South Africa. Okay, so I'm going to play a song. It's actually a parody song that uh, I, I composed about Barack Obama. So this will take about four or five minutes. So, uh, folks, uh, you can take a you can take a break. 
if you want to or listen to the music. We'll be back after this song, okay, Jan? So stick around. Uh, let's talk some more right after the song, okay? Okay. Here we go. Saul Alinsky's ranks 
Listening to that song, it occurred to me uh, Saul Alinsky is America's Joe Slovo. Yeah. That, okay. <laughs> Have you heard of Saul Alinsky? I'm well aware that uh, Obama loved him and looked up to him and was reading his book on on <laughs> how to transform America into a communist. Right. Oh yes. Rules for hey, radicals. Hey. A true Jewish troublemaker. There you go. I was just going to ask you, guess what religion he was, right? (laughs) Another Jew, another Jew commie. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Telling people rules for radicals, telling people how to destroy America. Yep, exactly. So, okay. Let's get back now to the Southern Africa, and you had mentioned a little bit about Rhodesia, and uh, in your slide presentation, you talk about Angola. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about Angola and how the Angola people, which was a colony of Portugal at the time, right? Yes, yes. So tell us about that and their fight against communism. Well, when, when these uh, communists started uh, taking over Africa, you know, as I mentioned in the slideshow, the British abandoned their empire because it appears to me the British could see that their empire would be overwhelmed by this massive Soviet-Chinese communist rebellion uh-huh. and the British having experienced their own Vietnam in Malaysia and also um, their first war in Africa and Kenya, the British could see that, oh man, they are going to lose their entire empire to a massive communist rebellion, and they might as well dump their whole empire. And when the British dumped their empire, and they controlled probably at least a third of Africa, the Portuguese, on the other hand, had decided that they are not going to give up their empire. The Portuguese have actually been the longest in Africa of all the of all the European countries. Wow! The Portu- the Portuguese like to boast, and it's an, it's a valid boast. The Portuguese boast they were the first they were the first Europeans in Africa and the last to leave. <laughs> and 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 the Portuguese, okay. do you know? Do you know that the Portuguese in total had a presence in Angola, even if it wasn't all of Angola, even if it was just the coast, but they had a presence in Angola of 500 years. Wow. That's, wow. that's even longer than whites were in America or anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, really, yeah. So, yeah outside so, of Europe, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the Portuguese... To the Portuguese, they had three territories in Africa. The one was the massive territory of Angola on the on the west coast. Then on the east coast, they had another big territory called Mozambique, and um, they had a small one in West Africa. And in the lecture, I just talk about Angola and Mozambique. But the Portuguese actually fought three wars against communists in Africa at the same time, mm. and, the, and their most important territory was Angola. 
And wow. the Portuguese, it was their richest territory. It, uh, Mozambique was, was a good second, make no mistake, it was a good country. Mm-hmm. And, and both of them had masses of natural resources, but Angola was the richest. It had oil. It had fantastic farming. It was truly, it was truly like a garden of Eden. And the Portuguese were determined that the one colony they were never going to lose was Angola. Uh-huh. And they fought for it for all they were worth. They really fought hard for Southern Africa. And they themselves would, they themselves started bringing in um, people from Portugal to come and live in these territories and to grow the population. And one of their achievements is that Angola at one time was the second, had the second, second highest population of whites in Southern Africa. Only South Africa had more whites than Angola. Hmm. And, the, and those whites in, in Angola, especially the Portuguese, the Portuguese were up against three black armies, all funded by communists. Hmm. The Portuguese smashed them. Now, the Portuguese, as, as a lesson to Americans, Americans are taught, well, apartheid was a bad system, an evil system, that apartheid didn't allow marriage between the races, and, and, and because of apartheid, that is why the blacks um, rose up against the whites. This is a lie, because if you look at the Portuguese, the Portuguese had a quite a different system. All our systems in Southern Africa were not exactly the same. And the Portuguese had a system called the Assimilado system. In that system, Portuguese could marry blacks. They could, have chil- they could have children with blacks. Ooh. And they did. And they did. And they, <laughs> oh my and, and, and they, they, they were very, very liberal towards blacks. Oh and, 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 and you would think, you would think that if you are very liberal towards the blacks, because this is what liberals, are te- liberals and Jews are telling Americans, they're telling you, well, if you're very liberal towards the blacks, then the blacks won't attack you like they did under ah. apartheid. <laughs> but, it, right. but it actually is not true. And the, the Portuguese ended up fighting the most, brutal, the most brutal racial fighting, the greatest atrocities against whites, that ever took place in Southern Africa occurred in the Portuguese territories, especially well, Angola. By by mulattoes. By blacks, yeah, the by blacks, blacks, the black, blacks, blacks engaged in the mo- greatest violence against whites. You know, um, there was in in my in my lecture I discussed the 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 attempt at genocide, the massive attempt at genocide of the whites in northern Angola. And how the blacks tried to wipe out all the whites, and how how the Portuguese eventually defeated them at a certain town, and they killed blacks by the thousand. Mm. And then the black, and then the Portuguese went on a counter genocide. The Portuguese mm. that the blacks had attacked and killed their women and children, and and the blacks. Uh, you know, the other part of the the untold story of Southern Africa is that. These black communists were killing all the blacks, killing and torturing all the blacks who were friendly to the whites. Right. This is this. This happened in South Africa. It happened in Rhodesia. It happened in the Portuguese territories. They never tell you that the communists were torturing blacks who were friendly to the whites. Right. Yeah. And yeah. 
and and the Portuguese fought back. The Portuguese went on a counter genocide. They and other blacks on their side went and killed black communists by the tens of thousands in revenge. And um, you know the 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 atrocities against the Portuguese people are are hideous beyond belief. There there were places where where live Portuguese people were put into sawmills and mm. sawed in half alive. And and I've heard from multiple Portuguese sources of blacks taking pregnant white women and slicing them open, pulling their babies out of mm. their out of their sliced Wombs. open uh, wombs and and even decapitating their babies in front of people. Wow. The most the most yeah. hideous atrocities that ever took place actually took place in these Portuguese territories. The blacks and the Portuguese, despite all the friendliness of the Portuguese to the blacks, the blacks were absolutely brutal beyond belief. And mm -hmm. and it's actually it's actually South Africa, apartheid South Africa, that had the least that that you could say had the least um, atrocities against whites. Mm -hmm. um, in, in because many of ways. Apartheid, because of apartheid. Yeah. Well, well, you uh, know, and, and, yeah, go ahead. And and the whites treated the blacks well. The whites yeah. the whites respected them and the and the whites were you know it 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 was not in apartheid is a complete misrepresentation of the whites of South Africa. Completely. Well certainly by yeah. the uh, international press you know, it was absolutely, the, yeah. And the they've they've lied through their teeth about the whites and how brutal the whites are. It's total nonsense. Yeah, it is, it is nonsense. But yeah, because uh, I know for a fact that the uh, the Zulu were on the side. The Zulu were anti-communists, and so the communist blacks had lots of uh, struggles with the Zulus, and they would they would kill each other. Way more, uh, you know, black communists versus anti-communists. Than white people involved. You know, most of the killing of blacks was done by other blacks in South Africa, correct? Dead right. Dead okay. right. That is completely so. And in the case of the Zulus, um, there was a Zulu prince called Butelezi. And in the 60s, in the 1960s, um, West Germany began supporting him. And later, even America and others we're looking at this guy because Butelezi was somewhat anti-communist. And even the whites uh, quietly gave the Zulus guns. And that is where a lot of the communists and the communists and the Zulus killed each other on quite a scale. Mm. There was like a, a war within a war on the east coast of South Africa. Quite okay. correct. Okay, very good. All right, so, yeah, let's get back to Portugal. Now, I have a question, because you said the, this black outrage against whites. What was it precipitated by? Because you said that the Portuguese were quite liberal towards the blacks and also engaged in, uh, you know, race mixing and actually encouraged it, uh, which is, yeah. reminds me of the Creole situation in Louisiana under the French. The Creoles were the mulattoes, you know, the, the half-breeds, uh, who were like between the blacks and the whites in uh, Louisiana. And, uh, but the mulattoes of uh, Louisiana were not really hostile to the whites at all. Uh, those Creoles actually 
considered themselves to be in a favorable position vis-a-vis the outright blacks, okay, and considered themselves better off and better cultured and, and blah, blah, blah. What would cause these blacks of uh, the, this Portuguese territory to be so hostile to the Portuguese despite their liberal treatment? Okay, and just just a comment, your description of the Creoles in Louisiana is very similar to what we your cre your Creoles and our coloreds are basically the same kind of people. And it's interesting that your description of their their way of thinking and so forth is actually identical to the coloreds. Okay. So it sh it shows you that the half breeds are much friendlier to the whites, and yes, they see themselves as superior to the blacks. Right. And uh, but what happened in in Angola was actually more a military decision. There were four different black armies, and it was the army in the north, um, which was controlled by a certain black called Holden Roberto. And this Holden Roberto was came up with the idea of the mass attack. Wow. He thought that he thought that um, that he could smash the Portuguese through mass assaults by overwhelming the whites. And it was a particular strategy that he embarked on. And he he thought he could completely overwhelm these Portuguese, kill them, and drive them out, and and win a war quickly. And in actual fact, his tactics ended up backfiring on him. Okay. So it was more. It was more a military tactic. It was more a military tactic. But but what you must also remember is that all these communist blacks were trained in brutality sure. and terrorism and brutality and the killing of any civilians, blacks or whites, was part of the part of the things that the Soviets and the Chinese taught them. However, the fact mm -hmm. that they tried this mass attack was. More the brainchild of Holden Roberto, and uh, okay. it it and when the Portuguese hit back, they really hurt the blacks. They killed stacks of blacks. Right, probably the, pro probably yeah. the greatest number of blacks ever killed in Southern Africa uh, in a short space of time occurred as the Portuguese hit back at the blacks in northern uh -huh. Angola. Well, rightfully so. Rightfully so. Uh, yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Rightfully, rightfully so, and a and a big feather in the in the caps of the Portuguese. Yeah, and truly. it's amazing to me that we've never heard anything about the Portuguese, and their uh, struggle to maintain their rule in in Angola. You know, I mean, I, I guess because they were so successful <laughs> that they, that, they, that their history is ignored, and uh, plus, I guess South Africa, it was the prime jewel, the last jewel to fall, so to speak that uh, we haven't heard that much about Rhodesia and Angola. Now, wasn't Angola also the, the communist effort assisted by Cuba in Angola? Yes, yes. One knocked out of the war through um, political machinations that I described in, in, in the lecture. Um, what then what then took place was was the Soviet Union and Cuba came in my own my own analysis and feeling on this matter is that the 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 South Africans after the after the Portuguese withdrew from Africa due to their own coup d'etat and problems in Portugal the South African military 
already engaged in some actions where they were sending armored vehicles into Angola. And I think that the black communists in Angola realized that they were now up against a really powerful force. And I get the impression, I formed the impression that that those blacks who, who were then uh, there, that those black communists then called on the Soviet Union oh. and the communist states to come and help them because they felt that they were going to be overwhelmed. Right. And also other communist blacks were also starting to turn against them. And oh, really? so, so okay. yes, yes, because, because in total, in total at that point in time, there were, there were still four black armies in total and three of the others started turning on, on the main ones who were in control of the capital. The main ones who are now still in power are the MPLA. Hmm. And all the other black commies started turning on the MPLA. Black communists, even in Rhodesia, um, also fought against each other. Hmm. There, there, comes a, there comes a point where they, where they don't just fight the whites, they start fighting each other. And um, in Angola, this became quite pronounced, and the MPLA suddenly found itself up against the other black commies <laughs> who, were, who also wanted power. And then, of course, with the South African army in the south and, and so forth, I think they called on the Russians and the Cubans, and that's hmm. when Eastern Europe also came in. There were even some East Germans and Eastern Europeans who came in, and I think that is how they formed this big army that was then uh, mainly the, the, the ground troops were mainly Cuban, but the officers in charge were Russians. The, okay. the, Russian, the Russian commander in the 1980s in Angola was a guy by the name of Shaganovich. General oh. Shaganovich. Oh, he's General, a Jew. He's a well, Jew. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. What is I don't know what his uh, religion is, but but, he, but but let's let's just say he was Russian, and he was in charge of uh, the entire war, and 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 the the Soviets were bringing in billions of U.S. dollars worth of um, weapons, and as I mentioned, wow. President P.W. Buerta told me personally that uh, the South African government. Uh, sent a message to the U.S. government and uh, to the U.S. Congress asking them, will you please, please place, place mines, will you please mine the Angolan harbors so that the Soviet ships don't come, you know, loaded, loaded to the brim with tanks and heavy equipment. Will you please uh, plant mines in the harbors so that the Soviet Union doesn't carry on with this incredible buildup, and 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 the U.S. Congress refused. They mm. they refused to assist South Africa. Mm. So the South, South Africans found themselves all on their own, and they had to fight this this uh, this uh, whole whole communist army composed even of whites and Cubans. Right. And it was, it was a heck of a battle. The greatest battles yeah. that ever took place in Southern Africa took yeah. place there. Wow, wow. Okay, so all of this was happening while the Portuguese government was still supporting the whites against all of these black communists. So uh, tell us how the Portuguese government began withdrawing their support. How did this happen? Because there's no doubt that the Portuguese would have won this battle 
no matter what, because they were beating the uh, the enemy so badly that uh, yeah. there was little chance for the communists to win this war. So what happened in Portugal that uh, that the Portuguese withdrew their support? Well, just to just to give you an idea of how well the Portuguese were doing in Angola, out of four black communist armies, the Portuguese had defeated three of them. And, and one of them, they'd knocked them down so low that they were down to, to one and a half thousand supporters. And, wow. they, and the Portuguese basically said to the one, to the one uh, leader, to the one black leader, you know, you stay in your area and you don't cause us any problems and we're not going to hurt you. Uh, the Portuguese were totally dominant, actually, in Angola. Mm. In, in, in Mozambique, um, it was more of a stalemate, but they still controlled the vast majority of the country. The Portuguese had no intentions of leaving. The other great thing about the, the Portuguese war was that during the time of the war, the Portuguese population was not only increasing in southern mm. Africa, but their, their economy was growing. The, <laughs> the GDP. The GDP of both Portuguese colonies more than doubled in a period of eight years. The Portuguese despite were getting, all the war. despite all the war, the Portuguese were growing stronger. The same is true of Rhodesia. The same is true of South Africa. Despite the wars, the whites in every single territory, the whites were actually getting stronger economically all Amazing. the time. Amazing. It, you know, and, and people forget this. Anyhow, the real thing that brought the Portuguese down was, from what I can tell, it seems the KGB, the Russian KGB, um, played a role in, in, in helping to kick off a coup in Portugal, which, which resulted in a bloodless coup called the Carnation Revolution. And in there, a pro-communist general took control of Portugal. And the first thing he did was he stopped all the wars. Mm. And he, he had a very big demoralizing effect on the people. Oh, and, 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 and everybody decided, oh, the wars are a waste of time. So even though the Portuguese have actually been gaining ground and, and even winning outright, everyone was feeling demoralized thanks to this guy. And they ended up giving away everything. And it was a huge disaster, not just for the Portuguese, but also for the rest of us in Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this, this, this uh, communist engineered coup uh, was the first of the, the, the big things that brought the whites of Africa down because, because up to that point, you know, from, from 1961 to 1974, when this coup took place, all the whites of Southern Africa were not only growing stronger economically, our population was increasing, we were winning our wars more and more, we were smashing the blacks more and more, and, and we were driving the blacks back everywhere. All, all of us were still in, in, in this, in, let's call this, in this communist race war, the whites of Southern Africa were winning for the first 13 years nonstop in mm -hmm. every single country. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and people don't know that, you know. Even yeah, the people yeah. who live here don't really realize it. Right. Well, I smell a Jew in Portugal. <laughs> Running yeah, a, how did the KGB have a presence in Portugal? You know, which well, – uh, go ahead. Well, the – KGB had a presence all over the world, even the USA. The KGB has had tens of thousands of spies in the US. 
So I don't know the full details of Portugal, but I've but I've heard I've heard references that the KGB may have played a role in the events in Portugal. Mm -hmm. The guy who definitely came to power was pro-communist. Yeah, and um, and 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 so it was basically you know for the Portuguese it was like F.W. de Klerk. It was it was like suddenly a white leader comes and he saw and he get and he hands everything over to the enemy. Right. It, it's not. It's it's not. And this is very important. Is that the whites of Southern Africa did not lose on the battlefield. They were never really beaten in a big way. They may have fought many big battles. They may have done many things. But the whites were never really losing. In the end, the thing that brought each and every white nation in Africa down was politics. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's hand over to the bats. And that was what finished us off. Yeah. That was the stupid. War okay. was not the thing that was killing us. Yeah. So, uh, and with the fact being that more blacks are killing each other than uh, probably whites can count, <laughs> right? It yes. wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Large. Large numbers of blacks were dying. Blacks were killing blacks. Whites were killing blacks. It it may be that more blacks were killed by blacks than than were killed by whites. It's, okay. That's also oh. very possible. Oh yeah, there, no doubt about that. No doubt. Okay. So uh, yeah, and even you described that these uh, three other armies turned against the main army. So here again, uh, but here this is just how the international Jew forces. You know, populations against each other under you know whatever pretext they can imagine, right? Whatever pretext they can imagine. Okay, so uh, here I just looked this up. The Carnation Revolution, and this looks like a left-wing site, but it says here the Carnation Revolution, Portuguese Revolucao dos Cravos, also referred to as the 25th of April, Oh, just a couple of days ago, uh, was initially a military coup in Lisbon, Lisbon, Portugal, on 25 April 1974, which overthrew the authoritarian regime of the Estado Novo, or the new whatever, <laughs> new Estado. The revolution started as a military coup organized by the armed forces movement composed of military officers who opposed the regime. But it was soon coupled with an unanticipated and popular campaign of civil resistance. The MFA would lead to the fall of the Estado Novo and the withdrawal of Portugal from its African colonies. One more, one more short paragraph here. The name Carnation Revolution comes from the fact that almost no shots were fired and that when the population took to the streets to celebrate the end of the dictatorship and war of the colonies, Carnations were put into the muzzles of rifles and on the uniforms of the army men by the Celeste Cairo. In Portugal, April 25th is a national holiday known as Freedom Day in commemoration of the revolution. So it was a revolution, a, uh, a, apparently a bloodless coup. I would imagine that Portugal had its fair share of liberal traitors that supported this so-called revolution. Absolutely, and and that so-called revolution and day of freedom cost the Portuguese their entire empire. They lost it all. Yeah, right, right. Okay, uh, now here, uh, here's a, another point, very interesting. 
The Estado Novo, greatly inspired by conservative and authoritarian ideologues, of course, this is a left-wing website, authoritarian. Uh, there's nothing more authoritarian than communism. Communism is the most... Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. This, uh, this uh, the Estado Novo, was developed by Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, president of the Council of Ministers of Portugal, from 1932 to 1968, when he fell ill <laughs> and was replaced by Marcelo Caetano. Okay, so yeah. here again, the Jews yeah. have the best luck in the world, don't they? Yeah, now, now Salazar, you could call Salazar a little bit of like, you could maybe call him Portugal's Hitler. He okay. wasn't quite right-wing, but he, he was an economist. He was a trained economist. He, he was the dictator of Portugal for, for decades, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was Salazar who, who was a prime mover in the fact that Portugal should retain its empire. And okay. that's why he fought so hard for it. And, the, and, and it's yet another example of when, when the most, when the strong white man, when the strong white leader goes down, then it leads to all kinds of weaknesses and, mm -hmm. and, and that Collapse. coup d'etat. Yeah. And, and, the, and the coup d'etat, one of the generals who wrote a book that was a very demoralizing book to the Portuguese people, and that book got a lot of sudden excellent publicity through Portugal. Everybody's morale went down, and that was all part of how this, this bloodless carnation revolution uh -huh. uh, suddenly okay. came about but yeah. but basically in a moment of weakness the portuguese threw away their entire empire never to see it again mm -hmm. interesting and just yeah. just like south africa you know in, yeah. in a moment of weakness you lose everything and, and right. whites and so well, less than all of us. yeah well we don't know how many years of planning this uh uh, carnation revolution uh, w was being planned uh, w when it, it fell overnight right so uh, uh, the uh, I know in South Africa the the story is that the apartheid regime was doing its utmost to service the black population with education uh, you know services economic advantages at all the, health, hospitals. Yeah, go ahead. Tell the story because a lot of yeah. Americans and Europeans don't know this. Go ahead. You know the uh, a big lie about the blacks of South Africa. You know all the people outside Africa here and outside South Africa is oh the blacks of South Africa are so badly treated. This is complete nonsense. If you go and you compare the standard of living of the black people of South Africa with all other blacks in Africa, including Rhodesia, including the Portuguese territories, you will see that under apartheid, the blacks of South Africa had the highest income, the best education, the best medical facilities. They, ha they had the highest standing of, standard of living of all blacks in Africa. In the same way that in the United States, that in the United States, that black people who live in the United States have got the highest standard of living of any mm -hmm. blacks on the planet. The right. same is true for South Africa, that the blacks of South Africa had the highest standard of living of any blacks in all of Africa without a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. Not only that, not only that, but even under apartheid, the, the white government was taking 
chunks of territory, turning it into fully-fledged independent homelands, giving blacks their own country, their own borders, their own government, their own parliament, their own police, their own constitution, their own mm -hmm. army. Black people were completely recognized as independent in some of these homelands. They had absolutely everything that allowed them to be fully independent. Mm -hmm. and, and the South African government gave certain Bantustans and homelands full independence, full legal independence. Mm -hmm. And it was the rest of the world that refused to recognize those uh, black homelands. Really? It was the rest wow. of the world that refused it. Those blacks could vote for blacks. They could rule themselves. They could change their laws. The South African government could not tell those blacks what to do. Mm. They had, and, and all of that is there. You can go and dig into it. You can look at it. How can you say that apartheid is an oppressive system when it allows them to rule themselves in the way they want to rule themselves. Right. They elect their own leaders. They run their own politics. What is oppressive about that? All right. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like a better deal than the, uh, the uh, reservations the American Indians have, right? The, the only thing they have is the casinos. They have economic independence, you know. But it sounds like the South African government was giving way more uh, self-determination to these black tribes than even our reservations do. Absolutely. It's it's absolutely unique. The, the, there were a couple of homelands, I think Transkai, Siskai, um, Baputatswana. Um, if you go and you study them, they each one was slightly different, but, but there were... Okay, to we to do, make go their own laws, and, and, you know, what was wrong with that? And, and the world turns around and says, that's oppressive. Yeah, and right, right. How ridiculous is that? You know, show me Israel. You know, does Israel allow the, 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 the Palestinians to have their own parliament and to do their own thing? I, I don't know. I don't think yeah, no, so. No, of but, course not. But, but um, South Africa was doing that, and it was the rest of the world that refused to recognize these states as states, yet legally and by every measure of, of international standards mm -hmm. there it is there it's at there it's at yeah and, yeah and 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 another point that i also made in the lecture that's important is that apartheid has only been on trial once and that that was in the 1960s when liberia and ethiopia um, went to the international court in the hague in holland and they charged that uh, apartheid was oppressive the South African government fought the case in The Hague and the judges ruled that apartheid is not oppressive. Mm. And, and that is the only time that apartheid's been put on trial and apartheid won. Yeah. And nowadays, if you go on the internet, you'll, you'll find that, go on the internet, you'll see that the United Nations has declared that apartheid is a crime against humanity. But that's rubbish because it's never actually been been put right. on trial. The, the only time it was put on trial, it actually won. There's nothing right. oppressive about apartheid. Mm -hmm. if, if you tell mm -hmm. other people, if you say to other people, listen, you got your own culture, you got your own territory, here's your territory, go do with it what you want to do. 
that's your border. Go well, take care of yourself. Yeah, that's Wilson's 14 points that he brought to the League of Nations, you know, at the Paris Peace Conference. That's what it is. Uh, how can it be conceived any other way? But even there, Wilson's 14 points, uh, you know, one of the major points being the self-determination of ethnic groups. You know, so any ethnic group that wanted self-determination would be allowed to have it under Wilson's 14 points. That sounds like what South Africa was doing. Yeah, there it was. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the, the, everybody's continued to believe that the whole thing was totally oppressive and it's yeah. just total rubbish, you know, right, completely right. misrepresenting what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the amount of lies uh, perpetrated against the country of South Africa and its white, uh, how, how could I put this, the, the generous, compassionate white people, their only crime was that they refused to race mix. Yes, yes, that, mm-hmm. that, that's it, that's it. And uh, you're dead on the money. I cannot improve on that, Eli. <laughs> right. they, they, you say it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But everything else they did was good. <laughs> everything else they did was far better than any other government in the whole African continent. Without a doubt. And, and do you know, do you know that, that under apartheid, that the world's biggest hospital was built under apartheid? It's called Baragwanath. It's the world's biggest hospital, and it was built only for blacks. Wow. And, and do you know that, that um, white surgeons and specialists from Europe went to Baragwanath Hospital to do surgery on black people? Hmm. Black, countless numbers of blacks have had their lives saved by the mm-hmm. brilliant, the white brilliant white people by brilliant white people from Europe. Mm-hmm. And, of course, from South Africa. I remember, what, the first heart transplant was done in South Africa, if I remember correctly? By, yes. Uh, Dr. South Africa. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Dr. Chris Barnard. By, yeah, Chris Barnard. So it just shows how far advanced the nation of South Africa was in those days under apartheid. Okay. Yes. But of yes. course, we, we know the Jewish agenda is to race mix, to miscegenate the white race out of existence. And so this was, this is why South Africa was targeted, because it proved that racial segregation works. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that is the, that is the big thing. The, the, you know, everything the whites said and planned and thought through, and the guys who thought it through weren't idiots either. I mean, uh, Dr. Hendrik Verwurt himself was, at the age of 26, he was a professor of applied psychology. He, he was probably one of, the, one of the most brilliant men who ever ruled South Africa. Okay. And he later became a, the head of the Department of Sociology. His whole his 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 academic career and his professionalism revolved around understanding people, mm-hmm. and he was excellent. But yeah. you will find that the Jews, <laughs> the Jews and the liberals, completely misrepresent this man. You'd think he was an idiot, right. and yet he was one of the most highly educated professional 
people that ever ever ruled this con- the, the, mm-hmm. the country of South Africa or any country in Africa. He's probably the greatest leader who's ever ruled any country mm-hmm. in Africa in all its history, probably. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally misrepresented. Amen, amen. Okay, so this uh, this uh, is an excellent overview of those three countries, and, and, and you also talked a little bit about Mozambique, that this global war, and, and we know that the Jews have orchestrated both international banksterism and international communism. Those of us in the know, those who are Jew-savvy, understand how this works. To, to what extent are people in South Africa waking up to this perspective that you and I have been sharing this evening? I think I think the majority don't know this yet, mm-hmm. but I will say that in the last few years that there's definitely a much faster growing awareness of this. Mm-hmm. I've never heard whites talk as much about the Jews and about even World War II as they are doing now. That's they great. are they are starting to wake up. But like America, it's still not the majority, but it's good to see that people are reading and thinking and waking up yes. and realizing how they've been screwed over and, and just plain, you know, it's it's almost like the Germans. I was talking to, to another American that I know and, and we were discussing at length, you know, how the Germans are probably the most, um, the most, cheated and screwed over whites on the planet oh for sure and 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 the and the boers and the boers and the whites of south africa are are a close second you know if not first yeah if not first but yeah very very close yeah you know you know the the common white worker in this world even even probably even in America and Europe in this day and age is probably being screwed over in, in ways that he cannot even begin to believe, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that, he, that all his hard work, all his talent is being abused by others who actually have it in for him. You know, That's it's, right. it's horrific. That's right. really. Well, I think the French workers are figuring it out. That's good. Uh, and and That's maybe good. some of the Italians and some of the Austrians. Okay, <laughs> I think they're beginning to figure it out. So that uh, you know the the presence of the Jew in those nations has been a net loss for every single one of those white countries. In fact, uh, uh, I've seen some of the chanting by the French demonstrators, the yellow vests. Uh, in one uh, one case, they said, "We want Trump. We want Trump." But there was another one where they were chanting against the Jews to the extent that the Jews, the Jewish national group in France, uh, wanted the French President Macron to clamp down even harder on the yellow vests. These are the Jews asking Macron to clamp down even harder on the yellow vests, you know, I mean, which tells us who is really the enemy of the French people. All I'm happy to say is that it delights. Oops. Yeah. Got a bit of a bad connection. Yeah, we've had a bad connection. Can, yeah, can you okay. hear me? Yeah. Uh, you're back on. Well, all I want to say is that I'm very delighted to see the, the whites of Europe starting to wake up and say things because 
if anybody should know what a nuisance the Jews are, the Europeans know the best. They, they've right. had the longest struggle with these nuisance people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and nothing pleases me more than to see the Europeans also entering the picture yeah. finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, with about 10 minutes left, uh, you and I met for the first time at the Fash Bash in the Poconos, and uh, this is probably your first meeting with uh, American white nationalists. Are are the American uh, nationalists as stupid as the international press makes us out to be? No, you know, I... When when I came to this Fash Bash event, my most important requirement really was that I wanted to, when the, when the guys who organized it invited me, my main requirement was I just wanted to know, are these people just doing white nationalism for fun or are they serious? <laughs> and, and I immediately began to realize when I met Jovi Val and the other guys, I began to realize, no, these people are much more serious, and right. I like that. And yeah. and the thing I liked the most about, you know, we also inv- invited other people who didn't pitch, but I liked the people who pitched up, and it was an honor to meet you as well, and oh, to likewise. meet Aryan yes. Nations, and, and to see, I was quite astounded how many Christians pitched up, and I was very happy to see whites there together, we may have different religious views, but we understand that we're white and we're sticking together. Yeah, and, we respe- and we respect each other's views, but we are brothers and sisters and we got to stick it together. And yeah. I actually like the guys. I like the seriousness. It was great to see the Canadians like Brian Rue and Monica Schaefer coming through. I mean, Monica having just come out of jail that she dared to come to America. And, yeah. and, and, I, be- and I believe on her way back to Canada, the, the, the police were busy confiscating some of her books, including yeah. my book. And my book. <laughs> really? Right, and yeah. your book as well. And yeah. I said to her, I think it's insane. Why are they confiscating Christian books? But anyway... I, I really I really have a lot of respect for Monica Schaefer that she dared to do this. It was so awesome yes. to have her there. Brian yes. Rue, I've got a lot of respect for. I mean, I was saying to Brian, I mean, any white guy who's trying to 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 talk about Adolf Hitler on the streets of Canada, yeah. that takes a that takes a lot of balls. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And and all all around, I must tell you, I was very happy to see that you know it it didn't matter to me how big it was. What mattered was that we were serious people and we wanted right. serious discussion. And I must tell you that I thought all in all, it went very well, very smoothly. I didn't see people fighting. I thought all around it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And anyone who tells you that. That the people are idiots. I mean, I liked some of the guys I was running into. I mean, there was an Englishman from who who runs a show called The Right Voice. There was the what was it, the New Jersey European Heritage Association. Right. Mm-hmm. They played a role. I, I liked I liked the people that I met, and and for me it was great. I hope we can have another Fash Bash. I hope it's bigger. Yeah. And I hope. I hope we can all get together again and and make a bigger success of it, you know. But yeah. serious people, you know, we're not here for no. for drinking and nonsense. You know, let's let's do some serious stuff 
Yeah. That that for me was important. I, yeah. I was very happy with it. Yeah, very yeah. happy. Well, I, I, I do have to say, you know, that the National Socialist crowd, as, as good as this group was, they still like to party it up, and they they like to uh, listen. It's it's not they don't stay up till four a.m. for the drinking, they stay up until four a.m. for the for the fellowship and for trading stories and for Jew bashing. Right? They really have a good time doing that. Right? And so uh, this uh, this uh, distinguishes the Fash Bash, the white nationalist group. And as you said, there were a lot of Christians there, and a lot of different shades of Christians. And, uh, you know, but the straight up Christian identity, because I was in a conference in Branson uh, like just a week before where it's more of your Baptist, you know, uh, singing hymns and uh, having uh, coffee and cakes, (laughs) right, (laughs) as opposed to these guys. I mean, there was food being flung all over the place. I mean, these guys were having a good time, right? So. These guys know how to party, but as you say, they are serious about their politics. Absolutely, and and they are serious about their politics, and they're serious about their resistance to the Jews. I mean, some of the guys I laughed also at some things that they got up to, and um, but but I enjoyed the comradeship. I thought I thought our general the general way that we all got along. I thought it was great. Really, mm-hmm. I thought it was yeah. great. I, I made lots of friends. I I met people. I, I met people. I met you. I met I met other people who I'd never met before. Never even thought I'd run into these people before. And I took down people's names, and we were talking, mm-hmm. and I was very happy. I, you know, to me, quality is more important than quantity. And I hope that um, I hope that there is more more of this, and and I hope we get to meet more people and get yeah. more serious people because. Because for me, it's important that we stand up for whites. We've That's got to stand up for ourselves. That's right. That's right. If we don't, the Jew will destroy us. That's his intention. That's its intention. The perfidious Jew has no love for the white race. And especially if you're a white Christian, they hate you twice as much. But here, I just brought up, uh, this is actually the link you sent me to Monica's post Detained for wrong think, Canadian border guard seized books from Monica Schaefer. Upon returning from the United States of America on 24 April 2019, I was detained by the Canadian border guards in the Calgary airport for three hours. The border guards, three border guards spent those hours perusing through my possessions. Maybe they got a chance to read our books especially the books that I was carrying in my small suitcase, they were looking for, quote-unquote, hate propaganda. And she lists your book, Government by Deception, first. So you want to tell people about this book and how they can obtain a copy? Well, my book, Government by Deception, is a bit hard to get hold of in America. Um, I'd have to see if I can get some kind of um, Mm -hmm. uh, e-book out in America again. Okay. I've got a couple of copies with me here in the USA at the moment, okay. um, and I I haven't really made further plans to to spread it, but maybe we can think up mm-hmm. something in the future. Government by my original analysis in South Africa, and uh, it was a book I wrote in 2002. It was my my sort of entry point into politics and trying to tell people about what is really going on in mm-hmm. southern africa so, so 
it would cover uh, your I, awakening to the communist question, right? Yeah, I think if people are interested in it, you can go to my website, um, historyreviewed.com, and maybe leave a, a message there. There are places where you can drop a line if you're truly interested, and we can see what plans we can make. Okay. So um, I'll try and work out something there in the future. Okay, so that's historyreviewed.com. That's Correct. it. That's my History. main website. That's I've also website. got africancrisis.info as my secondary website focusing more on Africa. Mm-hmm. Africaincrisis.info? Africancrisis.info. African. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the, but the main one is historyreviewed.com. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So with uh, just a few minutes left... Uh, let me also mention, uh, I've recently been in touch with a publishing house called Money Tree Publishing, and they specialize in publishing censored books. So uh, if oh. you, I can maybe put you in touch with that organization and see if they can uh, carry your book as well. Okay. All right. I would be most, most grateful for that. Thank you, Eli. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, All right. That would be awesome. Okay. So it, it, it appears, and I really agree with your sentiment, that we need to do more of these types of events, whether it's called the Fash Bash, whether it's called a, a Christian Identity Conference, whatever we call it. It's white people getting together, fighting for our racial survival and for the truth. Okay. I, I guess. Ab- go absolutely. Ahead. And, and, I, it would be great if um, Christians would, would open the doors to non-Christian whites who feel strongly about whites, you know, mm-hmm. because I think, I think the Flash Bash showed that we can, we can work as, alongside each other with respect right. and we can help each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even though uh, there were people there who had disagreements with each other about this and that, but they were all done in a very cordial and respectful manner. No blows were thrown. No, no drinks were tossed in people's faces or anything like that. As you said, these people were serious. They're serious about exposing the enemy and saving our race from the, uh, you know, from the, well, the slaughter, the literal slaughter that is occurring in white nations all across the world. So with uh, only about two minutes left, uh, your final thoughts, Jan Lamprecht. Well, I will say that I think people mustn't feel bad about the white rights struggling in America. The whites of America are inundated from masses of sources lying to them. And the fact that we're just a handful of people operating on our own, trying to fight an enormous structure, don't feel bad about the fact that we're not winning overtly. And the enemy is using dirty tricks at all levels. We must just continue. Don't lose hope. It is very important to keep the fight alive. Amen. Amen. All right. So, well, if we can manage it, uh, you know, White Lives Matter was the uh, one of the sponsoring organizations, and uh, they're growing as well. And they're doing a lot of literature, passing out literature, doing outreach uh, in primarily rural areas, which is, you know, it's 
it's pertinent because the cities are, are loaded with blacks and Jews and Latinos, right, who, who uh, Mexicans, illegals, you know, who have flooded our shores. And uh, they're not likely to appreciate this kind of literature. But I think uh, in rural counties, uh, we will have way more success. All right. Okay, Jan Lampert, thanks for being my guest today. The uh, information you have provided today is outstanding. Very, I'm sure very much new to the American listener and European listener. Thank you very much, and we'll be in touch, okay? Excellent, and thank you very much for having me on your show. It's yeah. been an honor meeting you. Yeah, likewise, brother. Take care. All right, Jan. All right, folks, that's yeah. our show for today. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you all next time.